Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of It, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 136. It's titled, at least tentatively, Filter by Asset Classes, and it features preferred stocks. Last week, I visited the Grand Canyon for the first time ever. I've flown over it on numerous occasions, but I had never managed to actually drive there. We stopped at the south rim of the canyon. It was cold, which somewhat surprised me. I always knew that the north rim was high elevation. It closed during the winter, but somehow I, I was under the impression the south rim would be much warmer. But it was about 28 degrees Fahrenheit. So we huddled into the Desert View Watchtower. This was a tower that was designed by architect Mary Coulter and completed in 1932. The main floor of the tower has several black mirrors that are outlined in with thick, thick wooden borders, and they're attached to the window frame. And so you can look into this mirror and see a reflection of the Grand Canyon. In fact, you're almost facing back. Your back is facing the Grand Canyon as you look at the mirror. There is a description on them that that said they were called reflectoscopes, but they are also known as Claude mirrors after the 17th century painter Claude Lorraine. He, He painted landscapes. The description indicated that Lorraine had invented the device, but that has not been substantiated. It's more likely it became known as Claude mirrors in the 19th century. During the height of their popularity, as amateur landscape painters were able to see reflections in the mirrors that had the same light qualities associated with Lorraine's paintings, which tended to have a gold tint on them. Now, viewing the reflection of the Grand Canyon in the Claude mirror does several things. First, it frames a view so we can reduce the magnificent scale of the Grand Canyon into a a smaller digestible whole. Framing is about setting limits. When an artist chooses a scene to paint or a photographer a subject to photograph, they're framing. They limit their view to perhaps 10 degrees of their 120-degree peripheral vision. When we limit our material possessions, we are framing. When we prune the number of activities we pursue, we are framing. Suetsu Yonagi, in his book, The Unknown Craftsman, writes, The acceptance of limits produces ease of mind. Framing frees up the mind to perceive the whole through the parts, as it restricts the amount of sensory input, just a sheer amount of information, because we have framed out something, we've limited it, but we can focus on that small piece. Artist Don Hoekstra writes, one gradually sees that any frameable portion of nature contains the wholeness 
and exhibits patterns of relationship between the parts in the whole that echo any other portion of nature that might be framed. Always a study of light, shadow, and color. This leads to an experiential understanding of the following principle from tradition. Nothing exists except in relationship to everything else. Everything exists only in relationship to everything else. By setting self-imposed limits, we're better able to experience the individual parts that remain. So when we're framing out just a little bit of the Grand Canyon, we, we can see the parts, but it echoes the whole but we can actually get a, a feel for the entire expanse of the Grand Canyon just by focusing on this little piece. Setting limits reduces sensory input, and that helps us to make ease decisions. When, we're, when we have so many choices, oftentimes it's very difficult to, to make decisions. But when we frame it and set limits and limit the number of choices, oftentimes it's easier to do. Now, not only does a clawed mirror frame a scene, it also, by using the black glass, it reduces and unifies the light, shadows, and colors. What do I mean by that? Well, Savan Dupre explored this idea. He was reviewing a book I found online. I couldn't find the book, but I found the book review. It's by Arnaud Millet, I guess is how you say it. And the, and the book was titled The Clawed Glass, Use and Meaning of the Black Mirror in Western Art. And he writes, The painter's problem is that the colors on his palette cannot offer the infinite variety of tones for a single color on a scale from dark to light, which reality presents. However, since a human eye is sensitive to different levels of brightness, rather than perceiving them absolutely, the painter's task is to reproduce these relationships. In other words, the scale, the ability the dip, to, to identify the different levels of colors in light. An example is we can't perceive, for example, audio if we just listen to one audio, but we can clearly see what's a better sounding audio when we, have, when we listen to one audio track and compare it to another one. It's the comparison. But it's very, very difficult to get these comparisons and to capture the entire essence of color when we're looking at the real thing. And so by using the clawed mirror, that black glass adds a smokiness filter to the reflection that better allows the human eye to detect the differences between different colors and shade to make comparisons. When we view the world, we essentially do the same thing. We're making judgments in comparison, but we're using filters. We're not using a black glass reflection, but we're using our biases. And that's why it's so important to seek out the perspective of others. I talked about this in episode 132 on Trump wins, and we talked about fake news, but we also talked about getting different news sources so that because their news is presented through a different frame of reference, a different filter. And in whatever we do, we have our own filter, our own frame of reference. So as we listen to others, it helps us to recognize our own and others' biases and filters. Now, 19th century watercolorist and art patron John Ruskin was severely critical of the Claude Mirror. Here's what he wrote. It's easy to lower the tone of the picture by washing it over with gray or brown. 
and easy to see the effect on the landscape when the colors are thus universally polluted with black by using the black's convex mirror, or the Claude mirror, one of, which he describes as one of the most pestilent inventions for falsifying nature and degrading art which was ever put into an artist's hands. He thinks these mirrors, this filtering impact that unifies the light, it, it falsifies and distorts reality. Is that true? When we add a filter to an Instagram photo or adjust the light balance to a digital photograph, are we falsifying nature and distorting reality? I don't think so. I think we use these tools as well as other framing devices and filters to give us a new perspective, to, to stop just the overwhelm of information to help us better make decisions. But we have to recognize that it's not the true reality. But everything we we can never perceive the true reality. It always comes through our frame of reference in our filters. Most things, including investing, would be overwhelming without frames and filters. And for example, there are so many different choices of investment securities, vehicles, investment styles, and processes when it comes to investing. I get emails from, from listeners and from members of the Money for the Rest of Us Hub that talk about how just the overwhelming feeling they, they, they feel. And, and having a filter or frame of reference helps us to do that. And for me, that frame of reference are asset classes. I filter and frame by asset class. By knowing what an asset class has returned historically and what it's expected to return going forward, given, given current market conditions, that allows me to compare different asset classes, one to, to another, and develop a mix of asset classes, a portfolio that I can then implement through index funds and ETFs. I don't have to worry about buying put options, call options, currency futures. I can just focus on developing a portfolio, a basic portfolio, using asset classes, some asset allocation, knowing what I can earn. And then once I have that basic return, I can start adding additional return drivers. And I talked about some additional return drivers in episode 133 on interest rates are rising and four things you can do. We talked about bullet ETFs. That's a different return driver. Bank loans, these variable rate loans, are different return drivers. Asset-based lending. This is a private investment, and I've been building out a portfolio of properties or loans tied to property through Pure Street. I'm currently looking at an impact investing firm. This is a firm called Wonder Capital that approached me about being a sponsor for the show. And I said, no, I don't want to have a, necessarily an investment firm or an investment platform as a sponsor. And they wanted to have a call and we went and I, and I had a really nice call and learned more about them and then potentially investing in their product because I'm a big proponent of impact investing. And what that is, that's where you potentially take a, a lower return or maybe a longer liquidity or illiquidity in order to accomplish a common uh, some social good. In this case, Wonder Capital provides some some financing to businesses that want to implement solar panels or solar energy. And, and I'll leave it at that, but it's an example of another investment vehicle asset class that gets layered on to a basic portfolio. 
But today I wanted to focus on an asset class that listener Patrick asked about almost a year ago. He says, Could you, would you do a show on preferred equity? And I had another member of the Hob ask about it a, a, a few weeks ago. And so and I thought, well, you know, I've not done a show on preferred equity. So we'll use it as an example uh, of this idea of focusing on asset classes. So we, in order to focus on it, we want to learn about new asset classes. Preferred stocks is something that, that many investors have not heard of. And I, even as a professional investment advisor, we rarely use preferred stocks. I remember getting one foundation client, a not-for-profit, and this was a spin-out from an insurance company, and they formed this, this not-for-profit. And so the investment officer for this foundation came out of the insurance business, and insurance companies hold a lot of preferred stocks because they generate income, and they hold a lot of convertible stocks. And this investment officer insisted that we do a preferred stock manager search. And so I, I went over the country trying to find the, the best preferred stock managers in, in, that I could find. So we did a search, and they hired a preferred stock manager to, to do a separately managed account. But what preferred stock and preferred equity is that they're a hybrid security. So they are equities, so you have ownership in the, in the company. But the reason why companies will prefer to issue preferred stock is by doing so, they do not dilute the common shareholders, the ones where that the earnings per share are based on when they get all the press in terms of did they beat their earnings estimate. When you issue more common stock, you are diluting those existing shareholders. The alternative is to issue debt. In that case, you wouldn't dilute those shareholders, but that would leverage up your balance sheet. But by issuing a preferred stock, you you essentially are, are not issuing more debt, but you're not diluting the existing shareholders. So it doesn't leverage up the balance sheet. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard. 
where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Deferred or preferred stocks pay dividends just like common stocks, but they do so on a quarterly basis. And what's, what's unique about them is management cannot change the rate that the preferred stock is being paid. So it's a contractual that the stock is going to pay so many dividends per share or, or such and such a rate. Sometimes it might be a variable rate preferred stock, so it, but it's still tied to an index. They can't arbitrarily change the portfolio. So there's a contractual agreement that this particular security is going to pay this particular dividend. Now, the company management have the opportunity, they can suspend the dividend, but if they suspend it, so stop paying the dividend, they, they can't, they would also have to suspend the dividend on their common stock. That's why it's one trade is called preferred stock because it's the preferred dividend. And if the company should, should, should run into financial difficulties, go bankrupt, preferred stock shareholders would get access to assets before the common shareholders. The reality is generally that the debt holders are going to get all the assets anyway. So that, that's sort of a, a, a moot point. But definitely preferred stock dividends will get paid first before common stock shareholders. And then there's two types. There are cumulative preferred stocks and non-cumulative. And the difference is cumulative preferred stock is if a company suspend its dividends, those dividends start accumulating and and the whole whole of dividends that have been missed will be paid. Non-cumulative, if a dividend payment is missed or suspended, you just don't get that. Now, one of the types of preferred stocks are what are called adjustable rate preferred. And they do adjust generally based on interest rates. And I'm going to give an example of that in a few minutes when we we sort of start analyzing preferred stocks. Now, there's also a lot of definitions, honestly, when it comes to preferred stocks. There's something called prior preferred and preference preferred. And and all that means is, you know, a typical company might have a series of preferred stocks. And prior preferreds, they will pay their dividends first before other classes of preferred stocks. Stock preference preferred would rank behind prior preferred. And finally, there are what is known as convertible preferred stocks that can be converted into common shares. I'm not really going to talk about those today because they're even an even nichier niche. Most preferred stocks are issued at $25 per share. So that's the issue price. That's the price that the dividend is paid on. And... Then the the actual stock will trade on an exchange, and like any stock, it can trade 
above that $25 amount, so it's going to trade at a premium, or it's going to trade below that, it's going to trade at a discount. So if we want to look at what the current yield on a stock is, we divide the dividend by the market price. Now, preferred stocks also have what are known, they have yield to maturity. And in that episode 33, I talked about yield to maturity and talked about duration, how bonds can fluctuate relative to interest rates. And I talked about yield to maturity or the SEC yield, which is essentially the yield to maturity less the the funds or the ETFs expenses. And what a yield to maturity is, that assumes that for a bond, you're just it's assuming what would the rate of return be if all the interest is received and then reinvested at current interest rates and the principal is returned, what is the rate of return on that investment? So that's what the yield to maturity is. They have those for preferred stock because most preferred stocks have an end date when the face value will be will be such a return to the shareholder. And so in that way, it's like a bond. It pays a set dividend, set income every quarter, and then there'll be a return of the principal or face value. So you can calculate a yield to maturity for preferred stock. And then if we back out the expense ratio, that's what's the SEC yield. So if you go on Morningstar or other, you can see, well, what is the SEC yield of this particular ETF that invests in preferred stocks? Or if you're looking at an individual preferred stock, you can look at its yield to maturity. Now, these dividends that stocks pay, preferred stocks pay, some of them, at least in the U.S., some of them are qualified. So you get special tax treatment if you're in the, I guess, the 10 or 15% tax bracket. You don't have to pay taxes on those dividends. And there's also non-qualified dividends. And it sort of depends on the structure of the preferred stock issuer. Many corporations, in fact, corporations own more preferred stock than any other entity. And that's because corporations get to exclude 70% of the dividend income from their taxable income. Now, there's certain risk when it comes to preferred stock. So we kind of know what the attributes are. What's the risk? Well, the first is one we already mentioned. They could just suspend the dividend. and, And that's a big risk. There's insolvency. The company could go bankrupt. There's credit risk in the sense that preferred stocks, most of them are ranked or rated by the major statistical rated agencies such as Moody's and S&P. So if a stock, so they're going to look at the financial viability of the company, they're going to look at how much coverage or the likelihood that the company will be able to continue to pay the dividend and they'll give it a credit rating. So if the credit is reduced from A to, to B, then typically that would hit the price of that preferred stock because it's not as creditworthy. It doesn't say it's going to go bankrupt, but as the, if the rating is downgraded, that will certainly hurt the price, and so that's a risk of preferred stock. There's some liquidity risk. This is a small market, and so there's not necessarily a whole lot of trading in the individual shares, especially compared to common. If you're an individual investor, typically you'll be able to establish a position But big institutions, it's much more difficult for them to establish a a position. Another risk is concentration risk in that most preferred stocks are issued by financial companies. In fact, if you look at some of the major 
preferred stock exchange traded funds, they're over 80% financial. And so you have to recognize that if the financial industry, the banks get into trouble, that certainly is going to impact preferred stock. And we certainly saw that during the great financial crisis. But the risks that I want to focus most on today are interest rate risk. Think about that. This preferred stock, they're paying a dividend over time. It's this, most of them, it's a set dividend, set dividend rate based on the $25 face value. And then at some point, they return the face value. It acts like a bond, which means that as interest rates go up, the value of the preferred stock will go down. The difference is with a bond, it's primarily driven by math. So the mathematicians, the bond investors, you can calculate exactly a pretty good estimate of what the price of the bond should be given what interest rates are. Preferred stock, generally the same way, except it's also driven by investor emotion. So they tend to be much more volatile. They're more volatile than bonds, generally speaking. Maybe not. they're not as volatile as common stocks. But the investor perception of what interest rates are going to do has an impact. We're going to go through an example of that in just a few minutes. So how do you invest in preferred stocks? Well, you can invest in individual ones. And you again, how do you decide? Well, you want to look at the credit rating. You want to look at its yield to maturity. Look at whether it's selling at a discount or a premium. Typically, if it's at a discount, it's going to have a little higher yield to maturity. You can invest in preferred stocks through exchange-traded funds. iShares has one. PowerShares has one in terms of a preferred stock exchange-traded fund. And finally, you can invest through closed-end funds, which, well, not even finally. I'm sure there's actually open-end mutual funds that invest in preferred stock. And there's closed-end funds. What's the difference between open-end fund and a closed-end fund? Open-end mutual funds trade once a day at the end of the day. And the price always equals the fund net asset value. Closed-end funds trade throughout the day, and its price can differ from its net asset value. Net asset value being the value of the fund's holdings divided by the number of shares. And so we know what is the value of the net asset value per share. The price can differ. It can sell at a significant discount, or it can sell at a premium. Exchange-traded funds are the same way. They trade throughout the day, so the price can be different than the net asset value. But there's an arbitrage mechanism, which we've talked about, a lot of trading by authorized participants to keep the price of an ETF in line with its net asset value. That mechanism doesn't exist for closed-end funds, and so there isn't a way within the market for that, that discount to narrow other than it gets bid up over time by investors. So that's how you invest in them. What we want to do now is look at an example. In episode 133, as I mentioned, we talked about duration and how bonds fluctuate as interest rates change. And one of the things that I did recently, I wanted to see, all right, we've had a period where rates have risen and and we've been able to see how different bond funds or ETFs have performed. For example, the, the Vanguard Total Bond Market ETF, it is down over the past three months about 3.28%, about 3.3%. This was through December 2nd. So the three months from, I guess it would be September 2nd through December 2nd, that fund fell by 3.3%. 
And this was during a period when interest rates have gone up in the U.S. by about 0.8%. And in episode 133, I talked about how you can kind of approximate what a, a fund will do, an ETF would do, as interest rates go up or down. And so for every 1% uh, increase in interest rates, a, a bond fund should fall by its duration. And so this particular fund, this Vanguard ETF, has a duration of 5.8 years. So if interest rates go up by 80 basis points, or by, I'm sorry, by 1%, then the fund would fall price would fall by 5.8%, and then you would get additional income. So we've had a fund, and I looked at so I can kind of do this back-of-the-envelope calculation. And so the Vanguard fund, I estimated, based on its duration and its SEC yield, its return over the three months ending December 2nd should have been about negative 4%. And it, it actually declined about negative 3.3%. So it's not exact. It's a back-of-the-envelope. The, the Barclays Aggregate ETF, the iShares Barclays Aggregate ETF, AGG, that has a duration of 5.3 years. Its SEC yields about 2%. It should have also, it actually fell about 3.3% over this three-month time frame. And it should have fallen, just based on this, this back-of-the-envelope duration calculation, about a 3.8%. So it's never quite exact. But the analysis I wanted to go through is what about preferred stocks? They're like bond ETFs in that they have an SEC yield, and and they react as interest rates go up. And a lot of investors get afraid of preferred stock because they're much more interest rate sensitive than bonds. And so I sort of did a back, uh, I sort of backed into, well, what's the duration of a preferred stock ETF? Now, this is not something that they share with you. It's something that, and again, it's based on the perception of investors, but if we take the iShares Preferred Equity Exchange Traded Fund, PFF, its SEC yield is 5.6%. So that's what it's yielding. And over the past three months, it fell by 6.1%. And so based on its decline, its current yield, and its decline of 6.1%, I estimated its duration is about 9.3 years. And the reason why I want to know that is I want to kind of get an idea of how price-sensitive this, this particular ETF is. The PowerShares Preferred Equity ETF has essentially an Im- implied duration of about 10.1 years. There are variable rate preferred ETFs, VRP, it's, it's by PowerShares. Even though its dividend rate adjusts as interest rates go up, it's actually been shown some interest rate sensitivity. It fell 4% over the past three months, which would be similar to a duration of about six and a half years. What was interesting, though, is I looked at some closed-end funds. I looked at the Novene Preferred Securities Income Fund. It's selling at about an 8% discount to its net asset value. And, and that discount has widened. It's about 7.9%. On average, it's been about a 3% discount over the past year. And its price declined. Its price fell about 8.4% over the past three months as its discount has widened. But its net asset value only declined 2.1%, and which means that it was less price-sensitive. And so the implied duration of this of this preferred equity is close to the fund is about four and a half percent. Another fund, the Cohen and Steers Limited Duration Preferred 
closed end fund has about its implied duration was about three years, so much shorter. So these are funds. Closed end funds have higher yields because they use leverage. Both of those funds have about thirty percent leverage. They also have higher expense ratios. The expense ratio for both of those funds are over one percent compared to about zero point five percent for a preferred ETF or preferred securities ETF. But it, this was just sort of when we talk about framing and filtering by asset classes. That's what we're doing here. We're learning about preferred stocks. And then as an investor, we need to decide, all right, do I want a security or an ETF or a closed-end fund, that an ETF that's yielding 5.6%, that's what those ETFs yield, or a closed-end fund that yields 8 to 8.5%, but has a higher expense ratio, uses some leverage. I want to know how price-sensitive am I willing, if rates go up another 1%, to have my ETF fall potentially another 6% or maybe less if I use the closed-end fund. So these are asset class focus framing. We're just framing. We've looked at preferred stocks, and then we decide whether we should invest or not. I I certainly am going to take a closer look at closed-end funds because of of the potential uh, yield and the fact that there's a little shorter duration and the fact that the discount, particularly for the Snovine preferred security closed-end fund, is wider than it typically has been. I'm not saying you should invest in it. I'm not promising that I'm going to invest in it, but these are just additional things I'm looking at. So that is episode 136 on preferred stocks. You can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.net. Please, that's such a way you can sign up for my weekly insider's guide and get a, an email sent to you each week after the show is released with links to the, that week's show notes as well as a summary article. And you can get that at moneyfortherestofus.net. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile, not provided investment advice, simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week. <laughs>